Hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising. With us today is OG NFT artist Mitchell Chan. Uh, hi Mitchell. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. Mitchell, tell us, how did you get into NFTs? How did I get into NFTs? Well, the funny thing is, is that when I got into NFTs, there was really no such thing as NFTs. The term didn't even exist. So it's almost like, how did NFTs get into me? It was 2017. And I had been a professional artist for a while exploring how do you make art that represents systems that are invisible? Because these are important parts of our world, right? Whether these are social systems or systems of discourse or economic systems, right? These are the things that we should be representing in art because they're difficult to understand. And so I was really interested in making art with blockchain. I just discovered Ethereum. I realized that, you know, with the ability to program money, and program systems of financial transaction. Well, that's a that's an invitation to create an artwork. And when I thought about what art would mean if it were to be transacted on blockchain, you know, there's something that was wonderfully absurd about it. 2017 was this crazy time. People were, you know, holding these ICOs and generating millions of dollars. And to me, the idea of trading an artwork as a blockchain token felt so much more pure, right? And that done in good faith, it was this perfect distillation of tokens that exist on this immutable blockchain being linked to some sort of promise, like some sort of set of values that could never be contained on a blockchain or any other piece of technology. And so I searched for art world precedents to to do this. And there were not many, but a few artworks created by artists who are really honest about ways that the transaction of their artworks affected people's relationship with them, experience of them. And so I translated some of those ideas into solidity. And what came out was a very early example of a non-fungible token. I mean, you're talking about the the zones of immaterial pictorial sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's how I ended up there. I was like, I was like, oh my God, could you imagine just a token, you know, on a ledger representing a piece of artwork? And I discovered there's this brilliant artist um, who's active in the 1950s and 1960s, Eve Klein. And he created an artwork at that time that was exactly about this. And it was called The Zones of Immaterial Pictorial Sensibility. And it was, according to the artist, nothing but a, a sensibility, right? A sensibility of, of an artwork, of an experience. But like all art, it must be able to be transacted and traded. And so you could purchase this immaterial sensibility, this invisible artwork for an amount of pure gold. Because he was trying to make a comment on the sort of durability, on like the durability and tangibility of market ownership versus the intangibility of spiritual ownership. So he would accept this immaterial experience. He would accept payment for it only in, in, in durable currency, uh, pure gold. In exchange, you got this token, like an actual paper token. It said which edition number you had. Um, and I thought, well, this is 
if art ever were transacted on blockchain, this is what it would be about. Like, sure, you can point to something else. You can point to something that's off the chain, but ultimately like ownership is, you know, on the market level, like it's a promise, like it's a connection and ownership on like the real experiential level is something that is like much more profound. So I took the rules for that transaction. Yeah. And I translated it to solidity. And for me, this was a way of like making a thesis about what token-based art would be. I was like, I'm laying it down. If this is ever a thing, this is really what it's about. This this piece of history sort of explains it. And the project I made was Digital Zones of Immaterial Pictorial Sensibility. It came out in 2017. I debuted it at an art gallery here in Toronto. There was a lecture, there were people in the audience and everything like that. And, and that happened. And then, uh, yeah, and then nobody cared for, <laughs> for a long time. What I found like super interesting is sort of accompanying this and, and also your, your sort of recent, the Soul LeWitt generator um, as well, is that kind of goes along with, I don't know if, if it is yours, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but is your thesis of what an NFT is and what makes an NFT sort of an NFT, sort of the NFT-ness of something, which is, I think, quoting from um, an article you wrote, sort of the separation of the the, the art form from the, the commodity, right? Like, I think this is what you said um, as to what makes kind of an NFT NFT and what's the sort of the innovation. Can you maybe, you know, sort of a, tell us the audience about this um, thesis of yours on, on, on the NFT-ness of something? And, and also, what do you think this sort of innovation leads to, I guess? Yeah, so that's it, exactly. And I'm so glad that you bring up that quote from the article, right? You know, whenever the NFT boom was starting up last spring, there were a lot of people who said, well, the NFT is just a receipt. That's all it is. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know well, what's, what's the problem. Like, this is actually very convenient to separate the receipt form of, of an artwork from its experienced form. Because this, this has always been the case that these artworks have these different forms, but usually they're kind of bundled up into the same package. So what do I mean by this? There are artworks, you go see them in the museum and, you know, they are experiences, right? And the experiences are usually tied up in their physical form. If you go see, let's say, a sculpture, let's say you go see a Michelangelo sculpture, right? Um, that expressed form, uh, uh, the carving and the polishing of the marble it elicits some sort of response from you. There is ideally like an, you know, a, a spiritual or emotional or intellectual response from that. Um, but the artwork is also an asset and it always has been. Um, although it's a little bit crass to talk about it, like we don't like to think about it. We don't like to think that so many of these experiences that are so personal to us and can be so profound, unfortunately also exist in this really kind of crass world of market dynamics, right? Um, that's, that's not a pleasant thing to think about, but, but, but it's always been true. Um, and so, but, you know, unfortunately, you know, for a long time, the thing that someone could own as an asset was also tied into the thing that people could experience, right? And so if you want to invest in art, if you wanted to invest in a Pablo Picasso, you would buy the Pablo Picasso and that experience and asset are both tied up in that one canvas over a stretcher with oil paint over it. And if you wanted to protect your asset, you would probably store it in like a free port, like maybe in Singapore, you'd probably tuck it away in a vault, like that's also denying its possibility of being an experience, right? Now, am I saying that, you know, it's good that, you know, some of the 
like the absolute treasures of our culture are also assets and are traded in this way. Well, I'm agnostic to it. Unfortunately, it's just always been that way. However, whenever you separate out ownership from experience, it allows you to do certain things. It means that, for instance, you know, if your art is a JPEG, everybody can experience the JPEG. Everybody can right-click save the JPEG. And that's not a bad thing. Um, it's a good thing. And it's actually also a feature that gives value to the other half of this equation, which is the commodity form, which is the NFT, all right, the token on the blockchain that points to that JPEG or that someday will point to your physical asset or whatever. And all of the things that you would do to an asset that you really oughtn't ever do to an artwork, all right, you can do now just to that receipt. You can put it in a vault, all right, without putting the artwork on a vault. You can fractionalize it. You can securitize it. You can borrow against it. All of these things, it's net a positive that sort of that commercialness, which, you know, if you want to call it crass, then then it's even better that it that it's separated from the artistic form of the work. So one of the things I think was striking to me was that with clients work, the collector paid real gold. I believe it was 20 grams. The certificate mm-hmm. says that in French, right? So for, for payment in, you know, a real tangible asset you received something that was the contrary of that, which was an immaterial kind of sensibility. In your case, you received Ether, like Ethereum, and you mm-hmm. conferred the same, the same kind of certificate or token in exchange. I was wondering what you made that, well, what do you think that sensibility is and whether you think that that pictorial sensibility is very different from clients because it's you kind of borrowed his title wholesale, but I think that probably you have your own thoughts about what that pictorial sensibility means for the majority of NFT projects thus far. The sensibility that underpins Eve Klein's work, that underpins my work. It's worth maybe giving our listeners like a little bit more background about the project that I'm referencing, a project that I did, right? So Eve Klein was an artist who's best known for his work with the color blue which sounds like kind of a simple thing, but he, I mean, it's really weird. It's weird that you could innovate a color, but he, he did, he, he innovated a color, right? He literally patented a, pro, a new process for making blue paint. And now that blue is very, very well known, but he considered this to be like a sort of very uh, exploration of a spiritual or, or, or metaphysical plane, right? And, but furthermore, yeah, he was trying to create like a real sensation in people and he was seeing the physical medium as being extraneous to that, it was hindering him. As long as there was a physical medium there, there was still something standing between him and his audience and directly communicating the type of sensation that he he wanted to communicate, right? Now, it is like, um, I think that all artworks, all, you know, I hesitate to say like all, or it's always been this way. Many great artworks are meant to bring a certain type of history to bear that is not present in the canvas, right? We know that artworks, one thing that they do is they bear witness to history and then they accru- they like kind of accrue that historical power. So when you look at a lot of masterpieces, you're not looking at just a bunch of oil on canvas, right? There's a part of you that sees that as a pointer that connects you to a time and play that connects you to the Renaissance or that, you know, connects you to a certain, you know, historical ideology or something like that. 
And that sort of magical connection can't really be like defined and, and mapped out in physical terms, right? So you're talking about well, what is the sensibility that, that I'm trying to confer? When Klein presented his pieces, right? So this is how it went down. You would walk into this gallery and thousands of people lined up at the, de- at the debut of this piece to get in this gallery. They got into this gallery. It was quite small. It was just sort of a, um, just kind of like a, a, a walk-up gallery on the street in Paris. And the walls were completely empty, right? Everything was empty. The whole space was empty. And there was nothing but the suggestion that there was this sort of ghost, this sensibility in the room for you. And the way that he presented that, right, in that context, it made sense for that time when we expected experiences to happen in physical space, right? And so whenever I decided that it would be a, right, and so when he had a zone of immaterial pictorial sensibility, it was defined as a certain amount of space that would be occupied with something that really oughtn't have any physical dimension, okay? I cannot have one meter cubed of sensibility, all right? I can't have, you know, I can't have three feet of, 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 of experience, However, one of the things I was really interested in is how at this point in history, in the 21st century, we do have so many experiences in digital space, right? And whether that is having parties with your friends on Fortnite, whether that is the fact that so many of the assets that sort of define our character were already, even before, you know, NFTs were happening as, you know, immaterial digital assets, whether it is the gear that you use to like equip onto your character in World of Warcraft or something like that. And so the idea is that, you know, before an experience would feel real if it was in the physical space. That's where you, that's where you feel real things, right? Is it at, at the park with the wind blowing through your hair and the grass at your toes? And now we're at this point where, you know, our experiences that happen on a purely in a purely digital zone, I guess I would say, are real. They have bearing on our life. Okay. And so this, and so therefore that is like a landscape that is ripe for creating an experience. And, you know, many artists, authors have created experiences in this zone, right? Like, you know, video games are experiences in a purely digital zone. And then it is about when you're asking about the juxtaposition between using gold and ether, right? So how do you use the currency that is most native to that like world that you're using as a framing mechanism, a context for your art, which is most certainly not of that context, right? And so Klein is asking for gold, the currency that is very much of the durable, physical, earthly world. It is representative of that, although his artwork is not of that plane of existence, you know, like his artwork is not of the physical existence. And so I'm creating this thing in the digital world. And I'm going to ask for the currency that is of that world, which is ether, right? Although my artwork, I'll insist, you know, my NFT is just a pointer to an experience of sensibility, which is certainly, again, not of that context, it's not of blockchain. You're saying that basically Klein drew in a kind of axis where on the one hand, he's asking for payment in a very tangible, real-world currency, but then he's offering something that, as you said, it, it is about the, the kind of real-world experience, right? But then it's titled in a way that makes you think that it isn't because he's referring to a sensibility. It's very abstract language, um, mm-hmm. and yet he wants you to be in that gallery and then sense 
or appreciate or apprehend that sensibility. So there's a kind of tension. I feel like there's a kind of like a dramatic tension that's drawn that, you know, is in the Klein work. And I think it, there's a different kind of tension in, in your work. Klein did have, again, he is trying to create this juxtaposition between like this very earthly transaction, right? And the, and the more sort of like spiritual exchange. And so, yes, he did have this ritual where you could take your paper token, all right, that indicated you had paid a certain amount of gold for this immaterial sensibility. And you could meet him at the River Seine and you could burn that token the only thing that you got for your gold. And if you'd held on to it, it would be worth a fair amount of money right now. And he would throw half of his gold in the river. And through that ritual, you would obtain the actual immaterial sensibility of the artwork. Because he was playing a little bit of a game where he was saying that when you paid him the gold, you got the receipt. But owning the receipt for a thing is not the same as owning the thing. It's not the same as the experience, right? It's kind of like that old adage of knowing you know, the price of everything and the value of nothing, right? It's like you've paid the price, right? But you haven't experienced the value. And that can only be done through a sort of relinquishing of your material rights, right? To relinquish your material rights is to open yourself up to the possibility of this art being something greater than an asset. So it's very, very beautiful. And this is an example of Klein using a ritual. And Klein like understands that all of this conceptual art project is sort of based on, like it requires an amount of like credulity, um, an amount of faith, right? We have to believe, first of all, that Klein is not scamming us, right? And when I talk about, uh, you know, when I talk about his work, you know, on podcasts or in interviews, and, you know, I have to give this really quick summary, it kind of sounds like it's something that I would understand why someone at home listening would roll their eyes and be like, oh, that's a scam. So you just, you know, copied the scammer. But he really, he's bringing his entire career to bear as sort of like validation, right? And as authenticating his motives for doing this. And he also understands that rituals are ways that we kind of build up this level of trust, right? This level of like trust capital, this amount of social capital. And so he wants to invite people to, to participate in that. Even the way you would enter the gallery was sort of a ritual. There'd be a procession. First, you'd walk past a blue window and then you would walk through these blue curtains and you'd get a blue cocktail, right? All of this stuff is important to build up that credulity and to communicate that, you know, you're not just like an art student who got high one time and thought, it'd be funny to sell nothing, <laughs> right? Like you got to build up that trust. So I translated the ritual to solidity. He had many, many rules for how these things were to be transacted, right? And I, and I, I took those rules. I looked at his notes. I went through, through, through archives and things like this. And I translated those rules in terms of how tokens were issued and how they could be burned and what would be redeemed. And I translated it to solidity. And then, you know, what came out was a non-fungible token, which to me validates the idea that Klein's artwork was the original non-fungible token. Because if you if you, if you just write it out in solidity, it ends up being an NFT, even if that's not what you're trying to do. And believe me, that's not what I was trying to do. I didn't realize it at the time. Anyway, to get back to your point about the juxtaposition, right? There's a juxtaposition there between like this token that exists in the physical world, amount of gold that exists in the physical world, a ritual that is staged in the physical world as a way of building a connection to a metaphysical world where he is essentially selling you a promise and experience and amount of trust, etc. And I believe 
believe that that juxtaposition also exists when the world is trans, like when the work is translated, because when we have a physical form and a digital form, those two things together frame the third thing, which is at the center, which is common to both projects, which is the metaphysical sensibility. And I'm talking so spacey and like cosmic right now. I can't even believe it, but it's true, right? Because it is like what I wanted to put in the artwork was exactly like Klein, a sensibility that was construed in good faith that I had spent a considerable amount of time meditating on and pondering and developing. And I talk about it in my essay, right? But that is also not on blockchain. That is not able to be communicated on blockchain. And we can talk about how there's a lot of NFTs that are really pointing to things that are not on blockchain and that are not on IPFS or anything like that, right? But like, it's funny, like people sometimes say that, you know, they say, oh, you know, this is like, you know, a, a purely on-chain work. These digital zones, they're 2017, like OG NFT, purely on-chain. These are not purely on-chain. Like the artwork that is pointed to, that is referenced, is not on-chain. And it's not on IPFS. Like it is a sensibility. It is an artist statement. It is like a belief that like I developed through looking at the work of Ecline and my own art career, right? That is the thing that we are pointing at. That is neither digital, like, like that is neither blockchain native, nor is it physical, physically native, right? There is a world of trust, a sensibility, understanding of social capital that, that doesn't exist in either of these worlds. The majority of the people who are discovering both your earlier work and also your, your later works are people, quote unquote, in the generative art sort of community. The whole concept of generative art is that people like to differentiate between, you know, apes, punks, toads, just any of those other kind of NFTs is the on-chain, immutable, trustless. <laughs> and in some ways, I think people think that in terms of value, think that an on-chain generative work is, is considered sort of more pure, authentic, or medium native from a blockchain art perspective than something that isn't, right? That's what a generative art collector would say, I think that the notion of artwork being medium native is a valid idea. And it's like a, a valid like criteria for assessing an artwork. What we have here in blockchain is an exciting new technology. And I just, hey, I just said that art is a really important way that we feel around for the edges of what is possible in that technology. Art is a way that we like play with technology without purpose and hopes of discovering like unexpected and exciting use cases and possibilities for it. I think it's it's very cool um, to be creating artwork that is that is native to a medium. It's it's really, really important to this technology. If you know, it's 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 not the only way of assessing whether an artwork is valid. But one of the unfortunate things uh, that happened in this bubble is that you know we looked for the easiest possible criteria through which to assess these artworks because we were mo mostly interested in looking at them as assets, right? So if you could, you know, kind of create a spreadsheet and it ticked this box, that box, that box, whatever, you're in. That would be seen as a good asset. When in reality, not all, you know, blockchain native, like not all applications of blockchain technology are of equal artistic value. But that's okay. Like, that's okay. It's fine that, you know, people get exuberant and, and sometimes overly exuberant. How, how, do you, how do you evaluate it? Like, for example, say art blocks, right? They have mm -hmm. 
they inherently rank all their works in kind of three tiers, right? They have their, their curated collection, they have mm-hmm. their playground, they have their factory. I mean, how do you feel about that kind of like hierarchy? First of all, like art blocks as a whole, and I'm not saying this just because I released a project on art blocks. <laughs> I, I truly do believe this. Like, like art blocks as a whole, like that project is, I think, brilliant. Like, I think it's truly brilliant. And I think it's, it's, it's actually like the platform is a significant moment in like the history of computer generated art that is as hyperbolic as you will hear me get about anything like i don't like i'm not someone who like runs around with like waving my arms going the history was made that's not me but art blocks is significant because there is something about the way that it utilized properties of the blockchain which are repeatable randomness and put that right at the seed of how generative art was made that is really unique and changing the ownership model of generative art does change people's experience of it right and this was i mean and this was eve klein's thesis as well which is that ownership is well what you know while it is while it does exist in this you know crass world of you know consumerism and material goods and something it does affect that profound level of experience it's important yes so i think that art blocks is important in terms of how it creates tiers and hierarchies of things i think that that is necessary I think that, you know, if you're a platform like Artblocks, your platform, like any gallery that is trying to advance art, like you have to kind of sort things, right? And you want to, on one hand, make your platform open for everybody to play with. So you have the factory stream. Then you also want to make a statement about your own values in terms of what you think is exceptional. And so you have your curated stream. So that's just the nature of the beast. Anytime you're trying to present art, there's an amount of curation that is going to happen. So that is fine. Now, finally, how has the market judged things? Eh, I'm not really one to like second guess the market. And and I'm also certainly not one who believes, oh, the market decides what is valuable and what is good art. No, uh -uh. that's not the case either. I think that like it makes sense that there, you know, has been a considerable amount of market euphoria around art blocks. Like it is, like I said, I do believe it's an exceptional project. Look, ultimately you can't have 500 projects out there that all have a market cap of $10 million. Like that's just not going to work. I, I, I don't believe that. These are not all grails. Like they're just not, you know? I think that like, I can understand like a narrative that recognizes, you know, Fidenzas as being really important. And, you know, I think that to me, what gives Fidenzas their value is that Tyler Hobbs is a really beautiful and clear communicator about his process and the way that he, you know, helped popularize the term long form generative art and the way that he recognized that actually there was like a seemingly subtle, but if you spell it out, actually quite profound change in his approach to writing algorithms that make art uh, as a result of the art blocks platform and that he employed that better than anybody, you know, that was, yeah, that's, that's valid. That's, that's, that's a thing. Is it like, you know, a hundred million dollars worth of thing? That's not for me to say, but I'll say definitely that it's a thing. And it's the same thing with like, you know, Dimitri's ringers. It was a very, very clear story, right? It was a very clear story of an algorithmic process. And so those artists that have communicated a concept like quite clearly, yeah, I understand why collectors have a connection to them. 
one of the things I thought you, you had a really good take on is, I guess, what the current sort of traditional art worldview of NFTs are currently, and and also what you think will be the move over essentially, um, and what will make people move if maybe if if they will move because this is kind of the cash cry of all sort of crypto, right? So so you know back from the very early days when people held Bitcoin, it was the meme, the institutions are coming, right? Um, and then now in the NFT world, everyone thinks that, oh, you know, the institution is going to come, you know, all these sort of traditional art collectors, you know, they're going to come, right? <laughs> they're going to come and they're going to mm-hmm. grab all this. Do you think that is going to happen? Yes, I do think that it's going to happen. You nailed it like right on the head. It was in 2017. We all said the institutions are coming. The institutions are coming. And then they like didn't come right away. Like they didn't come like the moment after we tweeted that. So we all thought the, that the sky was falling and, and then, you know, and, and everyone went away for like two years or whatever. Right. And, and just like be, be prepared with NFTs. You say the institutions are coming. The institutions are coming. And uh, when they don't come tomorrow, don't freak out. Like it takes time, you know, like it takes time for institutions to build a strategy around things and feel comfortable. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that needs to be done for it to make sense for institutions. We do kind of need to figure out like off chain, what the legal framework is that, you know, connects NFTs to an artwork that is not a JPEG, because I do believe that people should still want to go to galleries to see artworks that are not JPEGs. Love JPEGs, big fan of the JPEGs. Um, also love a lot of things that are not JPEGs. Would love to see them all represented in a museum. But tokenization just does make sense for the art world, for art world assets in, in a lot of ways. So It'll happen. There are just some some social layers that need to develop. There right, are some like institutional knowledge layers that need to develop. And also a layer that needs to develop is just like we need to just keep on making good art that is worthy of being in a museum. You know, I am as positive and, and, and optimistic about, you know, the state of art um, and about some of the good work that has been done in this space as anybody while still being realistic. Um, and I understand that, like, not everything is a meaningful part of the long-term conversation, you know, just because it was like the first project to, you know, use on-chain ASCII codes to represent a pet of, you know, a turtle or something like that, you know, um, that is not, that is not really the criteria that we've ever used for like meaningful, like a uh, public conversations, right? So, you know, we keep doing that. You, you understand the hesitancy from institutions on a couple of levels, right? One is like, we're not really sure how this works, like legally, financially, et cetera. You know, number two, you know, for like a lot of people, their exposure to NFTs is still, you know, they turn on Jimmy Fallon and they see, you know, uh, Paris, Hilton. Paris Hilton holding a picture of an ape. And if the curator of the MoCA looks at that and thinks, mm, NFTs might not be for this museum, you can understand that perspective. Like, it's okay. There's still work to do. But I do believe that ultimately tokenization and some of the benefits that it affords just make sense for, for artwork. It'll happen. It'll just be a while. Do you think that what, quote unquote, the consensus of the NFT community values now will be what when you know when the institutions or when the traditional museums and, and and the collectors come that they will essentially value the same things no i'll just straight up say no <laughs> 
like because it it rarely works out that way where like the market's initial reaction right the market's initial impression is the one that endures in history books right like that just it rarely happens because we're looking at different like we're different we're looking at different criteria and no that almost certainly won't no no museum is going to come around and basically say that okay so all right the exhibition is going to be apes and doodles and uh and and cool cats all right wicked we have our 21st century like triennial ready to go it doesn't work that way let's put it into the sort of the art quote-unquote art art stuff like do you think for example when the institutions come that they'll be like, okay, it's going to be X copy and Beeple and Fidenzas. Or do, or do you think that they'll look at something just completely different? As in, do you think they're incentivized to look at something completely different? Like, do you think they're incentivized when they come to say, mm, I, I just don't think, you know, what the current sort of thing is, is actually, you know, valid from from our sort of art framework because essentially if they come and buy what the current sort of quote-unquote consensus is from an art perspective right not talking about the collectibles but from an art it would be a a huge kind of admission (laughs) that they were kind of wrong or right whereas if they come and and essentially like have a completely different framework than what's currently here they would kind of be you know, having sort of some, I guess, both intellectual and also financial cachet by coming into the space. I would actually push back on a couple of those things. Um, First of all, I don't think it would be an admission that they were wrong because like museums are not in the business of like buying the hottest thing right away, right? Like they're making a bet on it. Like it simply doesn't happen. Like, Like they're in the business of taking the long view and trying to tell a story about a moment that happened in history. So there is this kind of self-fulfilling thing that could happen where I do believe that what we are seeing, like, 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 I do believe that this moment that we're in, that we've been in for a year, is a historically significant moment where people's relationship to art uh, and the way that we disseminate artworks, both in, like in their experienced form and in their commodity form, has changed. And that some in that institutions ought to talk about this and help us take the long view that is fairly removed from the market to figure out what all this means. That's what they do, right? They don't bet on horses, you know? And so when I say that there could be a self-fulfilling prophecy, it is that like, ultimately, when you're trying to tell the story of this moment, actually, maybe you can't tell the story of this moment without apes, right? Like, maybe you can't. I don't know. But I think that there will also be a lot of room for, you know, the artworks that tend to be more, yes, the artworks that are like blockchain native in terms of expressing the boundaries of the medium uh, obviously are important for telling the story of the moment when blockchain came to art world. And also the artworks that are reflexive about, you know, what blockchain means in the greater in the greater view of our history. Yeah, those are important. You just think about really, it's not what was worth a lot of money. It is what told the story of this moment, right? And what told it well, what can you build a story around? That's what museums do. But I would also suggest that like, when the institutions are coming, like they're not, they're not bringing any meaningful amount of, of capital. Like they're not bringing any meaningful amount of money. Like I'll tell you that right now, these exhibitions that validate, you know, what happened in art history, are usually like created from borrowed or or donated works. Like to give you some some context, like you know the museum in my city, the Art Gallery of Ontario, is the largest art museum in Canada. It has 
an annual exhibition budget of, I think last year it spent a grand total of either one or $4 million. I can't remember, remember whether they spent $4 million on acquisitions or whether they spent like $4 million including donations, right? That is not an amount of money that changes this market at all, right? And also I'm telling you, like they're not going to spend a quarter of their annual acquisition budget on a punk, right? Like that is, is not going to happen. They might be interested in like an exhibition that tells, you know, the history of, of, of portraiture that involves a punk for sure. And I'm sure they would like happily take your, your punk on loan for that exhibition. But I, I don't think it's going to be an influx of capital. What it will be is an influx of social capital and an influx of validation, which, you know, makes markets and the people who have actual capital quite exuberant. Our traditional last question, which is, who is your favorite artist? Okay, so how about, instead of my favorite artist, I'll tell you, my favorite body of artwork from like the last 15 years. And I'm looking at this catalog right now. My favorite body of artwork from the last 15 years was a series called Paperwork and the Will of Capital by the artist named Taryn Simon. And, you know, as somebody who thinks a lot about how art interacts with markets, how art is like a product of the markets and then how art feeds back into the markets for good or for ill. I think that the work, I, I think that the pieces in Paperwork and the Will of Capital by Taryn Simon are probably the most beautiful example of this that I've ever seen. And I'll describe them for you. I was lucky enough to see this exhibition when it opened in New York, completely by accident. I, I didn't know what I was walking into. This series of really tall, maybe six foot tall by three foot wide photographs perfectly taken of these flower arrangements. And the way that each of these flower arrangements was taken was the artist, Taryn Simon, she'd taken a number of photographs of the signings of important global economic treaties, right? One might be, say, the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement. And at all of these economic treaty signings, there are always these bouquets on the table, right? And so she would recreate them. And that's the name of every painting or of every photograph. This photograph would be, you know, signing of North American Free Trade Agreement, 1990 or whatever. And then there's a list of like uh, a botanist laid out all of the species of flowers. And what you realize is that actually all of these bouquets, which existed in real life at the signing of economic treaties, could be considered part of a genre of Dutch Renaissance painting called um, the Fantastic Bouquet. These were painted flower arrangements that could never exist in real life because the flowers didn't bloom in the same places in the same season. And so the only way that these floral arrangements could ever exist was in paintings. They were fantasy, fantasy arrangements, right? But what Taryn Simon did to photograph them was through the miracle now of globalization and global markets. She's able to procure all of these flowers from different parts of the world through the largest flower market in the world, which exists in Amsterdam, get them, you know, shipped overnight to her studio for photographing. So it's this amazing depiction of literally the scenery of globalization, right? The scenery of global economics, all right, made manifest through global markets and portrayed as pure like eye candy. And I think those are the most beautiful, I think that's the most beautiful artwork that's ever been made about global markets. Amazing description. <laughs> I'm just chuckling because I'm kind of Googling while, while you're talking about it. 
Mitchell, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Great discussion. And uh, thank you for coming on our podcast, Floors Rising. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow. And give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising.